Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. And Josh, after I do the murder on you, I'm going to sodomize you with a flute. Okay, well, <laughs> coming in hot here on the old awesome movie here. It's, it's been a big season because I figured out in the Wayne's World episode how to murder you. And uh-huh. now I figured out in this episode how to defile you because of this movie afterwards. So Good stuff. Good know. stuff. So the cops have a whole chain of evidence here to uh, <laughs> establish your, your motives and methods when we get to that. The, the one thing I was thinking, though, is the woman who was uh, sodomized with the flute in this film. By the way, what a way to start. Mm. Uh, was was a flautist. And you're not, Josh. You're a writer. So maybe I'll sodomize you with a typewriter instead. Wow, that I don't even want to think about the, <laughs> the process of that. It seems least, like a least, lot of effort. At so. least I'll be dead already. Anyway, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the films of 1992, and this horrific discussion <laughs> is related to our foreign film pick, which is a movie that Jason really loves and was was very adamant that we should cover in this season. It is a Belgian film, a mockumentary that has become quite a bit of a cult classic as well. It's called Man Bites Dog, and it is about a serial killer who does things like sodomize a flautist with a flute. Well, uh, he did not. Oh, that's true. You are correct. That's the beauty of this film is everyone is so roguish, not just him. Everyone, they just is unrelentingly horrible towards everyone. And, uh, yeah, that was his girlfriend who got uh, flautomized. Oh, there you go. That's a new word for you. Uh, I like how you you describe that as as roguish, as if they're all just like sort of, uh, oh, you with your murdering <laughs> and defiling well, of bodies. That's the tone, isn't that it? That is they're kind like, of the tone. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. You're right. You're right. Yes. I mean, that's one of the amusing slash uh, horrifying things about this film <laughs> yeah. is is the tone that it takes. It is a mockumentary dark comedy, you could say, about a film crew following around this rather jovial serial killer who's very proud of his what he sees as like a profession, I guess, and his methods. And they don't take a whole lot of convincing to get involved in participating along with him rather than just standing back and documenting what he does. And this film is directed by, written by, and starring uh, three filmmakers, Remy Belvaux, André Bonzel, and Benoit Poulvord, whose names I'm sure I mispronounced all of them. (laughs) And uh, this is a student film, honestly. It is a film that they all three made when they were film students as a graduation project. It was something that came out of necessity in terms of what can we do on a small budget if we make a movie that's meant to be a documentary or meant to look like a documentary, it can look rough. Um, You know, it's a way to cut corners in terms of budget. And so from those practicalities come this uh, really innovative film that was unlike almost anything that had been made before. Yeah, it's pure insanity, Josh, is what it is. And, (laughs) um, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to cover it is because this is it, baby. These guys, Benoit has a uh, flourishing acting career. And, you know, sadly, Remy killed himself uh, in about 2006. And Andre is a working filmmaker. But there's no, like, we can't track this to see, like, what they did next as filmmakers, because this is it. And this was such a sensation, you would have figured, like, we covered Blair Witch. Those guys went on to do other things afterwards, right? These guys just stopped making films and went on their uh, paths in different ways. Yeah, you would think something like this that was a sensation. It was controversial, but it certainly got a lot of attention and awards and, and critical acclaim and all of that, that it could have launched them into these big filmmaking careers. And for various reasons, I, I'm not sure entirely what those reasons are. It didn't do that. Um, in a weird way, though, you know, you compare it to Blair Witch, and I think that is a good comparison in terms of the found footage style and something that was made on a tiny budget and kind of comes out of nowhere. Those filmmakers have gone on 
as we talked about in that episode, to do a bunch of other stuff, but never anything remotely close to the popularity or acclaim of their original film. So, I mean, they're kind of one hit wonders in a way as well. Right. But these guys just did different things. They didn't ever try to make another movie together. And, you know, like I said, Benoit has become a very well-known actor in France and Belgium. And Andre is uh, a cinematographer uh, and just directed a documentary, I think, a year or two ago called Flickering Ghosts of Love Gone By. And and Remy, sadly, you know, like I said, he committed suicide. Yeah. Um, so this movie, I, I was looking to see if it was a big, uh, if, if it did well at the box office. The, the figures from Box Office Mojo says it grossed $205,000 on its $33,000 budget. I'm not sure if that was just in the U.S., though. It might have made more money in Europe. Um, still, I mean, for something like this that's so uncompromising, that can be difficult to watch, um, that's not a bad result, really, and is certainly a, a huge return on that budget. Um, I'm not sure why the title has been translated to Man Bites Dog here in the U.S., and, and possibly, I'm not sure if in, in other English-speaking countries as well, but the literal title translates to something like It Happened Near Your Home, and uh, I'm sure they could have come up with a smooth way to make that an English-language title, but Man Bites Dog, very uh, sort of idiomatic thing that we say really usually in reference to like newspaper stories, the idea that a uh, dog bites man is not interesting, but man bites dog. That's what makes news. But I, I, I don't know. I think weirdly, it's the opposite of that point that they're making in this movie, that it's not something that is so extraordinary, that it's it's banal what's happening here. And that's why it's horrifying to us. So I feel like that title translation is a bit of a miss. Well, it's catchy. And also maybe it's the idea of like, this movie is a man bites dog. If the subject itself isn't the fact that the way they treat the subject isn't the fact that there's a whole movie on it is a man bites dog situation. And then the last thing, Josh, is whatever I, you know, I think we had heard about this in the 90s. So, you know, whatever it made at the box office, it was, uh, I'm sure, just crushing on video. Yeah, I'm sure it was. And something like this that I, I know whether I heard about it in the 90s, I'm not sure, but I certainly had heard about it for quite a while before I first saw it. And anything like that, that's maybe it's uh, controversial. It's been edited. I mean, there are certain segments of the movie that were edited out for certain releases on video, as you're talking about here in the US for Blockbuster video, they edited out a couple of sequences because Blockbuster didn't stock NC-17 movies, which this is a rated NC-17 film. But even in the theatrical release, when I was looking up reviews for this, at least one review mentions that certain American releases of it in theaters have cut out some sequences and they were showing it with, with those sequences as intact at certain film festivals and things like that. So anything like that, that you're not supposed to see, it was banned at different points in Sweden and in Ireland, banned outright. Anything like that, it's going to make people want to see it just even more. Yeah, in Ireland, it was banned in 2003, 11 years after it came out, right? So, yeah. um, you know, Josh, you brought up the two cuts. I had seen the original cut and then I had seen the blockbuster cut. And after... I watched the blockbuster cut. I said, wow, what a difference. That's a that's a reference to a slogan from blockbuster video. I think. <laughs> yep. Did you actually see both of those cuts or you just no. wanted to make that joke? <laughs> no, I just, uh, you know, how many times am I going to get to do a joke? Like that, Josh, right. so. I feel like blockbuster video is a subject that you will have the opportunity to make a joke about many times on this movie I, podcast. I did work there, as, a, as you recall. So I do recall that. I don't know. Did you did you remember whether you stocked? Man Bites Dog at your Blockbuster where you worked? Uh, you know, we weren't, I don't think we had a big foreign section and I don't think Blockbuster was known for their uh, foreign films in general, right? You no. go to the independent video store to find that. But I can see people who, if they did know that this was at Blockbuster, not going to get it because the people who'd want to watch this would want to watch the real cut, right? So they right. would go to the independent video store and uh, and find the, the true blue movie that there that this is. That is true. But obviously there was enough interest from Blockbuster and Blockbuster customers for them to bother making that edited version. So I'm sure some people first saw it that way. Um, it was also 
heavily awarded. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 1992, where it won the International Critics Award, the SACD Award, which I'm not sure what exactly that is, and the Special Award of the Youth. So this is what mm. the youth are doing. They're making mm. this sick, twisted, horrifying thing. Um, and in its native country in Belgium, it won Best Picture from the Belgian Film Critics Association, as well as a, a bunch of awards from other film critics groups. This is definitely the kind of sick, twisted thing that film critics would tend to approve of. Uh, yeah, that, that's the Andre Cavan Award, which we talked about that in our Rosetta episode in 99 with the Dardan brothers. Yes. Um, you keep calling it sick and twisted. I just think it's a creative, uh, a tale of, uh, of, of storytelling here, Josh. And it's, uh, it's, yeah. I mean, it's both. It is. I'm not saying it's not creative. I'm you're not saying, saying it in sick. a negative way. You're, you're no. not saying sick and twisted in a negative way. Right, right. No, I'm saying it in a positive, in a way that like, oh, that it appeals to film critics. It certainly appealed to people like you and I who would hear about it and think that's something I have to see. Um, I mean, and that's not always a positive. I certainly remember, maybe this wasn't the case with you, but I certainly remember being a teenager and it, wanting to see stuff like Faces of Death or whatever, which is garbage, just because it's like, you're not supposed to watch it or whatever, supposedly, which is completely untrue when it comes to that. But if it has this this aura of not being allowed or whatever, or it's disgusting and horrifying or whatever. I'm like, oh, I want to see that. And uh, so there's certainly that kind of audience as well. You know, you know what I think, though, is with this one, you had mentioned it's kind of a cult classic now, like it's yes. 30 years on and it's still a film people bring up in conversations, you know, based on uh, like I literally just talked about it today, just talking to other film people or like, have you seen this? And like, you got to watch this. And, you know, it, it, you know, based on people who really like to deep dive or like go out there and try something adventurous with their, uh, Hey, you want to do something adventurous tonight while we watch a movie, <laughs> you know, like it's, but it's 30 years down the road. And I still think it gets a ton of, uh, word of mouth. Yeah. It still has that reputation. If you look at lists or articles about transgressive kinds of movies, um, this is this is usually on there along with with other, uh, you know, early John Waters or things like that or whatever. It certainly does still have that reputation, even if some aspects of it seem a little tamer to us now than they did 30 years ago. Uh, yeah. And some aspects definitely don't. <laughs> right. There are certainly I, I think especially the the two sequences that would have been cut for the edited version in the U.S. Both of those sequences, I think, are still pretty, pretty shocking to watch right now. Yeah. Um, so as I said, critics generally were in favor of this, even if they did also find it sick and twisted. Um, Kenneth Turan in the LA Times said, Man Bites Dog defines audacity, an assured, seductive chamber of horrors. It marries nightmare with humor and then abruptly takes the laughter away. Intentionally disturbing, it is close to the last word about the nature of violence on film a troubling, often funny vision of what the movies have done to our souls. Maybe it is just the filmmakers' youth, inexperience, and distance from Hollywood that encouraged them to think they could pull off an elaborate stunt that has something to say as well as a clever way to say it. When no one is jamming the rules down your throat, anything goes and anything can happen. Audacious is a good way to describe it. And um, I do appreciate that's one of the things the first time I watched it, I was like, every time you think they're going to pull back, they don't. They step on the pedal harder. Right. And that is what attracted me to it. I'm just like, man, they are just going for it. Falls to the wall here. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you can't just live in the, uh, you know, the, the, the soft safety like padding uh, that Hollywood presents, Josh, you need these. You need these kind of guys, these punk rockers out there making stuff like this. Right. And I think also maybe one of the factors that he sort of alludes to here is, like I said, this was a student film. This was just them coming up with whatever they could come up with to get a movie made. And I'm sure they never expected it to become some international sensation that would play at the Cannes Film Festival and get banned in multiple countries and still be talked about 30 years later. So when you're doing that, you're not really concerned with what our wider audience is going to think of this, what our tastemaker is going to think of this. You're just concerned with 
what can we do to fulfill our graduation requirements or whatever? There's a certain freedom in that kind of filmmaking as well. And one thing I wanted to bring up that Taran mentions there is like, it's very funny. And then tonally, I'm, I still think it's pretty funny towards the end, but it does shift a little tonally and that's tough to pull off, but I think they did it. Yeah, I think so too. And I think part of that is lulling you into even as horrifying as it is, you're laughing and you're like, oh, this is all just ridiculous. And then you get some really, truly horrifying moments there. Yeah. Uh, for example, Josh, what we I mentioned the the flute sodomy yes. uh, more than once, right? You and did. then yeah. And then, you know, uh he goes and he takes the flute to the sink to wash it off and clean it. And the one of the filmmakers says water isn't good for a flute. <laughs> you right. know, that, that, that type of humor is just it's so dark. And like uh, that's that's the concern at this moment. That he's going to ruin. The, he's going to rust the flute. Right. You know, yeah. that those are the things that I really found, like just, you know, uh, they really hit. Yes. And so even in those and that's toward the end of the film. So even in those really dark moments, they do keep the humor there. But I think. There's enough seriousness or enough impact that you there's moments where you're laughing and then you kind of choke on that, like, oh, shit, this is really dark. Um, and not every critic saw it that way. A couple uh, instances in reviews I read said, you know, kind of felt like the humor was too glib or that it wasn't allowing the audience to take things seriously. Um, Stephen Holden in The New York Times was mixed on this. He said, Man Bites Dog which was filmed in grainy black and white and has the jerky momentum of cinema verite is a grisly, sick joke of a film that some will find funny, others simply appalling. On one level, it is an in-joke about movie making, since one reason given for Ben's rampage is the need to steal enough money to make the documentary. On another level, the film satirizes real-life television shows that purport to take viewers into the thick of the action. It suggests how profoundly the presence of the camera affects events and thumbs its nose as the, at the very notion of documentary objectivity. It makes the audience the butt of a nasty practical joke. Yeah, I'm going to take exception to a few of those things, yeah. Josh. So yeah. first of all, I didn't find the motivation. Obviously, he did help finance the character, Ben helped finance it, but he was already doing this. It wasn't like, hey we're going to finance this movie by me starting to become a serial killer. You right. Know? Right. So I don't, so I don't buy into that at all. Secondly, um, this idea of like, Oh, well the humor is so dark that you can't take it seriously. Like it's supposed to be a comedy. Right. So like, you know, I don't, I don't buy into that either. Like, you know, that's the, it's a crazy topic to make a comedy about, but like it is a comedy. It is a comedy, but I do think that there are moments like we were just talking about where they mean for the audience to be able to take things seriously. They, they want you to be laughing and then reflecting on what kind of horrifying thing that you're laughing at. And it seems like some critics didn't make that next step there. Um, but uh, and, and to your other point, I think you're right that, yes, obviously, this guy has already been a serial killer. He, as I was saying, sort of sees this as his profession. This is how he makes a living. He doesn't do anything else. He kills people and steals their money, and that's how he finances his own life. So he's not becoming a serial killer in order to make the movie, but part of the way that he's able to draw the filmmakers in to participate in the activities is by reminding them that, hey, he they need his money, and if he, you know, the way that he gets that money is by killing people. And so, hey, why don't you help me out a little bit, considering I just gave you all that money for your movie? So I think there is some of that commentary going on. If you want to look at it about the idea of what will filmmakers do, what compromises will they make in order to get their films financed? I, I think he's not entirely wrong about that. Well, that's OK. Any any uh, commentary about filmmakers being whores is OK with me. That That only adds to it. All right. Fair enough. So uh, Mark Savlov in the Austin Chronicle, and I didn't quote this part, but he's one of the critics who specifically points out that the version of the film playing in Austin is the uncut version. He says, is it a comedy, a documentary, an underground gore fest? Man Bites Dog is all of these and much more. A ghastly, shocking and explosive debut with all the genuinely ruthless ability to disturb as an oily blue barreled revolver jammed in your mouth. 
shot in black and white, Man Bites Dog has the feel of a genuine documentary, which makes it all the more grisly. The questions raised, where is the line between reality and fiction, how much is too much, and of course, that's entertainment, are dodgy (laughs) enough in themselves, but the film never resorts to preaching. It doesn't have to. Shocking, audacious, compelling, and more than a little humorous, Man Bites Dog is a stunning original. Love it or hate it, you'll never forget it. You know, Josh, if there was a uh, a career for for voice actors reading movie reviews, you'd you'd be cleaning up right now. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm trying to make it engaging. It's it's a print thing. So uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, You know, what I like about this movie is uh, if you were like, I hated this movie. I'd be like, yeah, that's fine. Of course, right. like that's a totally valid reaction, right? You know, or if you were like, this is my favorite movie ever, I'd be like, yeah, I get that. You know, like, um, I, it is a visceral experience that makes you emote in one way or another. Yeah, I think he's right. It is the kind of thing that you're not going to forget, even if you're like, what a piece of shit that movie was. You will remember that you sat through it and it gave you that reaction. So, uh I yeah, I definitely I definitely think you're right about that and he's right. And I mean, he's someone obviously who felt like that whole review is just a rave through and through. But there are definitely and it's a minority of responses, but there are definitely some I I didn't quote there was a review in the spectator that was it was kind of too unwieldy to quote, but it starts with this long anecdote from the critic who did not like the movie talking about how in the screening that she went to there was some guy who was just laughing the whole time and using that kind of as an example of like, well, he's not reflecting. He just thinks this is hilarious. And this is the movie is not, you know, implicating the audience enough if they just think it's funny. And I, I thought that was kind of a bad faith argument based on some random stranger that she didn't even speak to. But there was certainly that response. But again, I think even that person is going to remember the movie and it's going to stick with her, even if she thought it was reprehensible. What movie? <laughs> Thank you. The movie we're talking about in this podcast. <laughs> so, Jason, uh, like as I was saying before, you were really adamant. We want you wanted us to talk about this film. You're a big fan of it. When did you first see this? I honestly only first saw it earlier this year. Okay. Um, and I, it just kind of was like you know, uh, awe striking. I guess yeah. is what I was awestruck because it's like, just like I said, every time you think they're gonna like. Uh, you know, no, this is too far. They just keep going. And uh, it doesn't mean I like every aspect of how far they went, but I appreciated just the the uh, guts that it took. No uh, pun intended there. Right. Um, and it just like keeps coming up. Like the movie keeps coming up. A friend of mine brought it up to me because he had heard, and we know Quentin Tarantino is a huge fan of this movie and one of the champions of it. And it makes sense to put it in this year with Reservoir Dogs and all of these kind of independent spirits finding their way. I think this is a really perfect example of the kind of filmmaking audacity of the time and that spirit. Yeah, it makes sense that Tarantino would be a fan of this. And you can certainly get some of that sardonic humor along with shocking violence that Tarantino is, you know, it is a, it's a trademark of Tarantino's work, I think. So that definitely makes sense. And yeah, I saw this. I don't remember exactly when it might have been up to like 10 years ago, but certainly not right when it came out or anything like that. I remember having heard about it for a long time, as we were saying, and I may or may not have heard of it when I was a teenager and was really into like, I have to watch everything that's banned or shocking or whatever. But certainly I'd heard about it for a long time as a cult classic and watched it just because, I don't know, it came up in my queue or whatever as something to watch. And then the first time I saw it, I was a little let down. I think maybe, I don't know what I was expecting exactly, but having heard for so long that this movie is so insane and so transgressive, I think because some of it, some of it, not all of it, but some of it is a little tamer now because so many people have done similar things. I was a little underwhelmed with it the first time I saw it. But actually, I think I liked it more this time because I didn't have that sort of years of expectation of what kind of film it would be. And I just appreciated it on its own. And it is still there are still moments, again, especially those two sequences that got cut in a lot of places. It's still pretty shocking to watch, I think, even today. And as I was telling you yesterday, to me, 
I don't think I could ever enjoy this as much as I did the first time because it was such a shocking experience unless I watched it in a like group with people who had never watched it. And that was why I was excited for Dave to watch it because he had never seen it before. Yeah. Did you uh, did you have that experience, Dave? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's absolutely wild. Um, and I really appreciated how like you know, committed to the bit it is that like right. kind of made it a really interesting experience. Um, I, I didn't love it as much as Jason does, but I, I think it's, there's a lot to love about it. It's, it's, it's a really crazy movie. And I feel like this is, I don't know if this has come up on piecing it together, but I feel like this is a movie that probably could be a puzzle piece for a lot of later films as well. Absolutely. Yeah. David, I do that preview episode every month, like, you know, and we just did like dash cam or whatnot. Any of these kind of like found footage, like you mentioned Blair Witch, but found footage, murder movies. And uh, I think there's, yeah, it just, it resonates to this day. It does. So is there anything else you want to talk about on the background of this film? Uh, no, I wanted to get the uh, Tarantino thing in there. I thought that was important. Yeah, no, I'm good, Josh. Um, I, you you covered a lot there and uh, and good for you for that, Josh. Well, thank you. I'm I'm doing my best. So we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on Man Bites Dog. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about our foreign film pick, the Belgian mockumentary Man Bites Dog. And Jason, you mentioned the the star of this film, Benoit Poulvord, um, who is also the co-writer and co-director, having gone on to a big acting career. And it's not a surprise that that happened, even though presumably at least part of the reason that he's the star of this film is because they're all film students. And, you know, if they star in their own film, that saves them some money or whatever. But he is so charismatic to watch as as Ben Benoit, the serial killer. I think that's a big part of why this movie is shocking because this is like, seems like a charismatic kind of guy and he's so jovial and then he does these horrible things, but also just his performance is mesmerizing. Well, Josh, I'm on the side of you, but I know Dave is not. So let's turn the floor over to him for the opposite point of view. Did you not like the performance, Dave? It's not that I didn't like the performance so much. It's, I just, don't like this guy. Like, I don't like looking at him. I don't like the way he, you, you know, like is. yeah, he's just, he's so, he's got such like a punchable, you know, persona, you know what I mean? And it's just, it's an, it's an annoying person to spend that much time with. And it's not that he's doing a bad job in the role. Like it's, it's an interesting character for sure. And, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily take away from it. It's just, God, did I hate him? You know? Dave, if you saw him in another movie, would you be like, I don't like looking at this guy? I feel like I would. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I wouldn't that's go that a, far. Uh, that's wild, Dave. Yeah, that's that a, was my uh, takeaway. That, that was my biggest racist. problem with the movie. You're I, Benoit racist. I, I'm racist against French people. Yeah. Just they're, against they're Benoit. Belgian. He's Belgian. They're Belgian, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. They all yeah. look alike, right, Dave? That's yeah, what you're there saying. There you go. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> an amazingly... Uh, shallow take dave and i'm ashamed of you oh, i mean uh, I, I i think the character is meant to be obnoxious you know he's charismatic right. he is in a, that obnoxious, obnoxious way yeah yeah he's and he's the kind of person and i feel like i've known this kind of person who is on the one hand you're like oh god this guy again but on the other hand he's got such an overpowering personality that you get involved you're like oh here's this guy i don't want to talk to him and then you talk to him for like two hours because mm -hmm. it's just impossible to get away we know plenty of people like that josh and then you know the thing that i like about him though is it's a layered character right like when he's walking down the street and he's talking about the architecture of the kind of high rises or the, you know, for lower class housing that they put up. And he's like, why is there a Japanese garden and this and that? And like, I like that stuff as much as the, you know, uh, the big brash stuff. But in that similar sequence, there's where he goes and he kills the old woman just by scaring her. And he's like, look, I saw she had medicine. So I just scared her. And now I've saved a bullet. You know, I'm being smart about this. Like, 
I could see how that's irritating to people, but that uh, that just endears me to him, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he is layered and, you know, he's got this very pretentious personality. He writes this terrible poetry that he's very, very proud of and always wants to read. And he's very insecure in a way as a person. I mean, there's that whole sequence where after they kill the old woman and he's all excited and happy about how that whole thing went. And he's telling the filmmakers like, hey, guys, you know what I'd love to do? Let's go take a two hour drive to the seaside and let's go get dinner and have muscles. And don't you want to do that? That would be so fun. It'll be cool. And they're all like, uh, uh, we got we got other stuff to do, uh, maybe another time, you know, which is a very relatable thing that happens when someone who annoys you is like, hey, let's <laughs> hang out. And you're like, I don't know. I think I'm busy forever. Um, but he gets all hurt and he's all passive aggressive, like, oh. Yeah, no, no, that's cool, guys. Don't worry about it. And, you know, that's a whole relatable interaction. But there's that added layer of like, but he's also a serial killer. So if you turn down his invitation to dinner, maybe he'll murder you. And then they cut to they all went to dinner. Right. And he's an even bigger asshole at the dinner when he tries to order a wine. And the waiter's like, no, that's not a good choice. May I recommend? And he cuts him off and he goes, you know, go pick your, go fix your pockmarked face and leave me alone. Like it's just horrible. Right. And then, but you know, I like another aspect of it is like he had this grand plan and then he gets horribly sick. Right. You know, from the muscles and everything. I I was thinking, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I thought the idea was that because he dismisses that waiter uh, and orders the wrong wine, that that's what makes him sick. Like the combination of that wine with the muscles is a bad idea. And he ignored the advice. And so he got sick. Is that, did you get that? I didn't get that because no one else got sick, you uh, know? So, yeah. but I do like all the times he gets his comeuppance, like, cause he is this arrogant, you know, a-hole, right. And we see him in the gym, like talking to the lady, right. That he helped, uh, you know, support, I guess, or whatnot. And he's like, come see me. I'll give you some money. You can buy a real dress and not look like, you know, a gypsy anymore and everything. <laughs> and then he gets in the ring and he gets clobbered so hard he ends up in the hospital where we get just an, an, another incredibly insane sequence, right? With an old man who uh, is proud of himself for uh, shitting himself so much and making the nurse clean it up. And it's just the whole thing is just wild on wild on wild. But he does like he's a bad person, but it. But he has a lot of bad things come back to him also. I mean, he does, you know, spoiler, the movie ends with him dead. So, yes, he has a lot of bad things come back to him. And that sequence that you're talking about with the the woman who's like a cleaner at the at the boxing gym, he's sort of, a, I guess, an amateur boxer. And he does this for fun or whatever. He does some it seems like maybe some professional matches and makes some money. But it's not to me. It wasn't just that he helped her. He says he got her this job as a cleaner but there were some implications there i mean because she's not only like shy that he's the dad that he's the father of her child that he's like raped her a bunch maybe i mean she's clearly afraid of him and you know not wanting to to upset him I, i felt like there was a whole dynamic there that they were alluding to just in that brief scene Huh. I didn't get that. I mean, I definitely got that she's scared of him, but he's a known serial killer that everyone just kind of accepts that that's what he does. And maybe right. she doesn't accept it. I'm like, ah, that's just what he does. That's like, hey, I got to watch out for him. But what did you get, Dave? Well, I, I just think it's funny that none of that made me not like him. It's just his personality. <laughs> you know <what> I mean, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's the weird thing about the movie. Um, I mean, but you're right. There is all I feel like a lot of that is his personality, his his pretentiousness, his insecurity, you know, how thin skinned he is, how he's actually really quite desperate for approval from people around him. And he's the kind of person that if he doesn't get that, even though he's super insecure, his response is horrific violence. So, Mm. I mean, I think it, it all ties together that the fact that that is his personality, but, um, I want to just, I want to say one thing about that hospital sequence when they're talking about the boxing match and, you know, he just gets slaughtered, but the way he describes it to his family was, it's a competitive sport, you know, and, uh, these, you know, like that it was a real even match and it was a real, uh, fair athletic, uh, affair there. Right. And when we see, obviously, it's not even a match like that. We don't see. They're sparring. Right. They're sparring that the one sequence where he's going to have a match where he which is where he talks to that cleaning woman back in the in the 
green room or whatever it is. We don't see that match. It's later. He's just sparring with someone and the guy just hits him once and he's laid out <laughs> totally. Yeah, that 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 is that is great. You know, what about I'll tell you what I thought was just brilliant was there was and we're giving away all the spoilers. So, you know, watch, watch it, because I think we do. We've mentioned those two sequences that have been cut, which we have to get to. But I want to talk about one other thing that I thought was so great. He's in his hideout and there's a hitman who comes to try to kill him. And there's a rival documentary crew filming that hitman that they eventually murder. But the fact that like this is not such a unique idea that they're the only ones doing it is that to me just like, boom, you just bumped the whole thing up right there. I like that a lot. That was Yeah, that is great. And and one thing also that after so Benoit kills the guy who's trying to kill him, the sort of rival murderer that's being followed by the documentary crew. And then he's like, you know, look at this. Look at this bullshit. What are they doing? Their camera is so much nicer than your camera, Remy. And he's like trying to be magnanimous. And he tells Remy, who is the, the director of the film within the film, he tells Remy like, here, take my gun, murder this other guy who's directing this other film, you know, murder your rival. And Remy's just like, okay, cool. And he murders him. You know, it's like there's no level of hesitation here for participating in what's going on. And that's part of the, the you know, the what I liked about it is like it wasn't a convincing. It was just like a natural progression. But also he was wrong about that camera, as they point out in the film. Like, it's a bigger camera because it's a video camera. We're filming on film, man. You know, I'm like, right. so you're wrong. Yeah, there's that stuff. You know, when the when the film crew does get involved in the murders, I believe the first one is really the most horrific one, which is one of those sequences that was cut, right? Which is where he goes to the suburbs and he kills the mom and the dad. And then he hears a little boy and he chases him into the woods. And then he gets the film crew to, to help him uh, capture the kid. And they, they smother this kid. And that was where I was like, wow, they are really going for it. And I, I, Josh, I, uh, of course, am against all murder as we are here on awesome movie year. But I did think like, man, the, the balls on these guys to actually film, to not only kill a child character in a movie, but to show them killing the child by smothering him. And then talk about the other times that he's had to kill children and why he doesn't like to do it. I just thought like, no matter what you think of this movie, these guys are just going for it. Yeah, they really are. And that is a sequence where I think, and and I didn't remember all the details, but as you're watching that sequence, when the kid shows up, you know, you'll start to like, oh, is he going to kill this kid? Like, are they really going to go for that? And then the kid runs away and you're like, oh, maybe not. They're, the kid's going to escape. And then they get him back. And not only do they kill him, but like you said, we show, we see every moment of him being smothered and the film crew you know, Benoit is like, hold him down for me, would you? And they're like holding him down as he smothers the kid and is just kind of talking casually the whole time. Um, Yeah, and I think there is this very matter-of-fact sense. Uh, As you were saying earlier, like, it seems like everyone in his life is just super chill about the fact that he's a serial killer. Um, At least um, Laura, the woman who, I guess you described it as as his girlfriend. I wasn't 100% sure if that was meant to be their relationship, but they clearly have a closeness. And the film crew at one point asks her, like, what do you think about what he does for a living? And she's like, ah, you know, I just, I don't, it's his, it's his work. I don't pry or whatever. Like she's very casual about it, but I wasn't sure whether his family, we see him spending time with his mother and his grandparents and whether they're meant to know. One detail that I read in, in a review somewhere was that those characters are played by Benoit Poulvord's actual mother and grandparents. And when they filmed those scenes, they didn't tell them that the character was a serial killer. Yeah. Genius. It's yeah. just genius. So I took that to mean that the family doesn't know. You know? Right, right. And so you're right. His friends and family are just like, yeah, you know, yeah, he's a murderer. He's our murderer. That's right. our murderer right there, right? right? And then they, when he gets out of the hospital, they have that birthday dinner for him where he just murders one of his friends for just being kind of snide in the corner and then then you see like the rest of them are like hey that wasn't cool i got blood on my face why'd you do that and then but then you know he's like 
oh, the cake is good. Can I have some more champagne, you know, and everything. And like, they're all, they don't know what to do at that point in time. Right. And that seems like a moment where even though they may fully understand, and there's another scene earlier in the film. So another friend slash girlfriend is this woman who was, I think, a prostitute at one yeah, point. Yeah, that's what I got out of And it. he tells a whole story about how she was uh, living in this, this, place where they were uh, going to either was it demolish it or redo it or something. And re residents are getting pushed out. And he had a talk with one of these uh, guys who was uh, pressuring her or whatever. And clearly he's killed that guy. And she seems to very much understand that that was what happened and be totally fine with it. But then later on, yeah, in that scene when they're faced with him actually killing someone right in front of them, who they all know, it seems like it maybe brings it home to them like, oh, wait, this is really this is what he does all the time. And they're all just covered in blood and just yes. going on with the dinner because they don't know what to do. Um, you know, two other things I wanted to mention is, you know, we, before they all get murdered in the end. Right. We lose two of the uh, sound guys. Right. In a right. very spinal tap type moment. Yes. But what they do differently and it's so brilliant is, you know, uh, Remy has this interview where he says, you know, we're going to miss you and we dedicate this film to you and to, you know, Marie Claude, uh, your girlfriend who was carrying your child. And he says that. And then when the second sound guy dies, he says, we're going to miss you and we're going to dedicate this film to you and to your girlfriend, Marie Claude, who was carrying your child. And it's so brilliant and absurd. Like, that's just like, that's just a high, a high level joke right there that I thought was just awesome. Yeah, that is great because the first time it happens, you think, wow, Remy looks really upset. And this is one of those moments where like the reality of what's going on comes home to them because Benoit is totally chill about the sound guy getting killed. He's just like, oh, sorry about that. Like we, you know, as if they like broke something or whatever, you know, and Remy seems really super, super shaken up about it. And even before that, there's a whole scene where they're out at a bar. And Benoit is being all jovial. And Remy seems like he's really sad and upset that the sound guy has been murdered. And then it happens again. And he does the exact same thing. And so you wonder, like, well, was he really upset? Was he making all this up? Like, there's no way that both of these guys had girlfriends with the same name who were carrying their children. Like, that can't possibly be. I mean, to me, it was the same person. That was the genius of yeah. it, right? Yeah. You know? Um, but, um, Josh, you bring up that, uh, that bar scene. Could you count this as a Christmas movie? <laughs> you could. I think actually sure. when I when I went and logged this on Letterboxd and it shows you, you know, what list this movie is in, I think it was in someone's list of Christmas movies. So, you know, at least one person thinks of it that way. I love that. I love like, you know, uh, seeing stuff like that, that really, you know, we just know it's the time of year and they don't really reference Christmas beyond that. But it, it counts to me because it is a Christmas, you know, that happens around Christmas time. Um, I guess we got to talk about the, the, you know, if there is a sequence more uncomfortable than the murder of a child, there's the gang rape and dismembering of a, of a woman and uh, her husband watches on and he gets murdered too. And that is a, that is a tough one to, to handle, I'd say. Yeah, that is. And that's one where the film crew is really implicated, I think, maybe even more than anywhere else, because not only are they sort of assisting in murders or whatever, but they are gleefully participating in the rape of this woman. Like they are super eager to each of them take their turns with her as this husband watches with a gun to his head that Benoit is holding. And it is definitely horrifying. And then the aftermath scene where she is just completely gutted, like literally gutted, her, her entrails are everywhere. I mean, this isn't necessarily a super, super gory film despite its NC-17 rating in other scenes, there's some blood, but it's not, it's not to the degree of a lot of horror movies, but that scene has so much gore and is just, again, so matter of fact. And they're just like lying on the ground, sleeping like they're, you know, sleeping off a night of partying too hard or something. And yeah, that is a pretty horrifying sequence. Dave, what did you think when you saw that? I mean, like I said earlier, this movie commits to the bit. It like just keeps <laughs> going. It does not let up. And that is, you kind of have to go. If you're going to go as far as this movie goes, you have to go that far. So yeah. it fits, you know. One thing I was wondering is, um, what do you think if this was released today? What, what would uh, the reaction be, Josh? 
Well, I mean, I think there's similar kinds of stuff. I think there would probably be the range of reactions that there were at the time, which is some people would be horrified by it and appalled by it. And some people would see it as sort of empty button pushing. But I think a lot of people would be into it. I mean, you know, if you talk about things that are, quote, problematic today, you know, Benoit himself is extremely racist and homophobic. But he's a bad guy. I mean, I don't think this is a movie that people say like, oh, this movie is racist. Like, we shouldn't let him say racist things. Like, it's clearly- He's a bad person in general all the way through. Yeah, and that's clearly meant to be part of seeing him as bad. And in a weird way, you watch him kill someone and you're like, ah, that's part of what is in a movie. But then he says racist things and you're like, wait a minute, this guy sucks. (laughs) Well, that's what's uh, that's interesting that you bring it up because we're so des- desensitized to it, right? Murder, right. it's just like murder a person, eh, murder a dog, no, right? Right, you know, exactly. And, like that. Yes. and it, it is, um, it is rough. And, and you know, I, I commend them also, like when they're dumping the bodies and you see like those bodies just like crashing into rocks in the quarries on the way down. And it's like, even after they're dead, they still make it just even more brutal and everything, you know? Right. So when you say there's stuff today, I mean, cause I think we all agree, like this was executed on a high level for humor and, you know, um, you know, getting the, it wasn't just there to shop. Like they, they accomplished something. What right. do you think today kind of uh, fits that mold? Well, I mean, this might be more uh, to talk about in the legacy. So uh, should we give this a rating and then uh, circle back to that? Yeah, let's rate it, Josh. Out of uh, five dismembered corpses? I don't know. We always do that. Something Five five old men shitting themselves? There you go. I was going to say five flutes that have been used for sodomy, but anything awful. Whatever awful thing we can come up with. Five five awfuls. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so Josh, the first time I watched it, it was four and a half for me. Wow. Um, Like like I said, because it was so, uh, you know, audacious and just mesmerizing, and I appreciated that, and it made me laugh a lot and i don't think it could ever recapture that like i said upon second viewing so this time it would probably be more of a three and a half so i'm gonna go with four i think it's four uh you know uh awfuls whether it's a uh, old men shitting themselves proudly or or uh flutes that have been used to sodomize <laughs> yeah whatever we want it to be so i like i said i had kind of weirdly the opposite reaction where the first time i was a bit underwhelmed and this time i think i appreciated it a little more so I'm going to go with three and a half, whatever we want to come up with there. But I do think this is a movie worth seeing if you can stomach this sort of thing, if you watch, you know, horror movies or things like that, because there is still like uh, a lot to it that is is bracing and that is is still pretty shocking to watch. And and that has had an influence, which we'll we'll talk about in a minute. On uh, on other films. So before you rate it, Dave, I want to say, Josh, it's interesting because you you were like, if you watch horror movies, and to me, like I'd be like, yeah, if you like comedies that are just go for it, you know. <laughs> well, right, but I think I think not that this is a horror movie, but I think some of the violence and the gore is uh, the kind of thing that people who watch horror movies are cool with, and people who enjoy uh, maybe crazy comedies are uh, less used to. But but both. Yeah. If you like horror movies or if you like crazy comedies, like I said, something like early John Waters, which is transgressive and gross in a different way. Yeah, this could be for you. Dave, you're up. Three and a half from me. But I actually could see myself going up to a four if I rewatch this one of these days, because, yeah, if I get past uh, my dislike of our main character here, <laughs> I, I think there's so much to like in this movie. So. Yeah, that is a lot to get past, though. He's kind of in every every frame of it, pretty much. He is. Almost. He really yeah. is. That face. Yeah, that, that face. It's so ridiculous that that's <laughs> what you took away from it, his punchable <laughs> face. We'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Man Bites Dog. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about our foreign film pick, Man Bites Dog. And and Jason, just a minute ago, you were asking me what this movie has influenced or, or kind of what are those transgressive type movies that we get today. And I think one thing you pointed out there is important is that this movie is that, but it's also sophisticated. It's also funny. It's also actually satirical. And I feel like a lot of times 
the kinds of movies that get that attention, like, oh my God, this is the most disgusting, horrifying thing ever that you have to see it, don't have that level of sophistication. They don't have a level beyond this is disgusting and horrifying. And, and I, still, right. I still watch that stuff. Like I'm thinking of things like The Human Centipede or uh, a Serbian film um, to, to cite two examples from the last, I don't know, decade or so that are very much trying to shock you and trying to be as absolutely transgressive as possible, but don't, to me, have anything beyond that. But even so, even when that's all they have, those movies amass cult followings. But see, I'm saying what executes that on both the levels, not just the shock. And I think like someone like Neil LeBute, when he was debuting, maybe is something like that, who did shock you with his content, but also was executing the humor on a very high level. So is there anything today, whether it's horror or comedy, like I don't watch Barry. People love Barry. I know that. And I got to watch that show. But like, that's a show about a serial killer, right? And Dexter was a show about a serial killer and everything like that. So sure. I mean, there's plenty of media about serial killers who are charismatic and that and end up with fan followings. Um, you know, both of those things that you mentioned or Hannibal, for example, with Maz Mikkelsen as Hannibal Lecter. I mean, all the versions of Hannibal Lecter, really, but especially that series, I think people really gravitated toward that towards that character as being charismatic and amassing a, a fan following. So I don't know if any of those things are quite as transgressive as right. this is, but but part of it is because we've already transgressed those boundaries and you can't go backwards. I haven't seen this movie, but what about The House That Jack Built, the Lars von Trier film? Yeah, Lars von Trier, I think, like Neil LeBute, is, is a filmmaker who is really interested in, and I haven't seen that particular film either, but I've seen other Lars von Trier films, and I, which I'm sure you guys have as well. But he is also someone who is known for being super provocative and wanting to create that kind of reaction. So I don't know if any of his films are quite as gory. Maybe The House That Jack Built is. I think that was right. like an NC-17 rated film. So, so maybe that's the one. But even in his non-gory films. You know, Josh, you mentioned Mads Mikkelsen, and I was actually thinking two Mads Mikkelsen movies that both made my top tens list over the past two years and different subject matters. But I think Another Round and Riders of Justice like really executed a high level, difficult subject matters and make you laugh, make you think and make you uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, I think those are both good movies and they do have that balance. I don't know if either of those are nearly as, as again, as like transgressive as this. Well, is. no, and that's why this is a good conversation because like, look at how hard it is to find something like this, right? You know? Right, right. I think more there's some, there's stuff that mimics the structure of this. I mean, like you said about Blair Witch, like this is one of the early mockumentaries slash found footage movies. I mean, there are definitely plenty of, horror movies that mimic this found footage style of, oh, we're filming a documentary or whatever. And there's a movie that I've seen that is clearly very, very indebted to this film called Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, which is about a documentary crew following a slasher movie villain, you know, basically like Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. And they eventually get caught up in his activities. And it's very, very similar to this. And it definitely had a, a bit of attention, a bit of a, a cult following when it came out. I don't remember exactly when, but, you know, five, eight years ago, something like that. Yeah. And we mentioned Blair Witch, which is just all found footage, but it follows documentarians. Whereas this is a mockumentary, but the last shot of Blair Witch is a complete, if not homage, how we say steal from this movie, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, because to us, I think mockumentaries, I mentioned Spinal Tap and we go to the Christopher Guest stuff, right? Right. And, and it all kind of fits in from that humorous standpoint and that fourth wall breaking, talking to the camera and everything like that in a different way, because we know that there is a crew there and everything. Right, right. And you, you know, you talked about the the multiple deaths of the sound man and how that resembles the multiple drummers dying in Spinal Tap. And I'm sure these filmmakers had seen Spinal Tap and were familiar with it. And that was one of the prime, if not only examples of that mockumentary format that would have existed at the time that they made this movie. Would the clearest inspired by example be natural born killers? That could be. I mean, that's not a mockumentary, is it? No, but they do get a, a film crew together Media to follow pitch, them yeah. and, right. you know, all that. So, yeah. I mean, I feel like that had to have been in the air when when Oliver Stone was making that. 
Well, well right. And I you mean, who wrote it? Right, right. You know? Tarantino, um, obviously, yeah. was that was a big influence for him. So, Jason, as you said, these three filmmakers, Benoit Polvord, Remy Belvo, and Andre Bonzel, really didn't go on to any kind of big filmmaking career. Polvord is the one who has had the biggest film career, but as an actor, he's a highly, highly acclaimed actor in Europe, mainly in Belgium, who works steadily still, has won awards and stuff like that, but um, has not returned to being a director. And Remy Belvaux, as you said, uh, did pass away in 2006 of suicide. Uh, it's weird, re reading his Wikipedia page, the only other thing listed is that in 1998, he was arrested uh, for, along with other activists for throwing a cream pie at Bill Gates. So that's, that's his whole, that's like his whole career in Wikipedia is man bites dog, Bill Gates cream pie, dead. So that's his life right there. Uh, you know, to, to, he did two of those things are very unique. And the third <laughs> one we all go through. So. I, yes, I suppose that's true. And I was interested to see, as you mentioned, Andre Bonzel, who had not directed another film for all of this time, but last year made a documentary called Flickering Ghosts of Love Gone By, which as far as I could tell is not available in the US, but it is a sort of personal reflection on his life. And just from looking at the IMDb page, it lists all these, uh, you know, his collaborators on Man Bites Dog as appearing in it. And I'm assuming it's got footage of them together, maybe from their student days from this era so that it is at least partially a reflection on their experience making this film. That's one to put on the watch list on our Just Watch page. There you go. And uh, maybe we'll get that to be released uh, eventually here. I, I don't know. So, Well, I, I wanted to say the, the nurse is Edith Lamerdi, who's also, uh, this was her film debut, and she, is a, uh, she works constantly in, in probably France and Britain as well. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, because it's a student film, I'm sure a lot of people were like the family when Benoit Boulevard is like, Hey mom, grandma and grandpa, will you do me a favor and appear in this film that we're making for school? You know, I'm sure a lot of the people in this film are just, and you watch the credits and you see so many of the characters are, they're right. just credited Last as the name. actor's real name. You know, it's the same person. So, um, yeah, it's not surprising that that was mostly what it is. So, I mean, this is a legacy in a weird way. The fact that these people didn't go on to do anything else gives it this uniqueness uh, yeah. as part of its For, legacy. First time that we've done that on uh, Awesome Movie Year. And I thought that was so cool. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I don't know of anything else that quite has that slot. Was this the first NC-17 movie we've covered? I believe it is. I mean, there just aren't that many of them. Even now, yeah. it's, it's something that, that people shy away from so much. So I don't recall... And NC-17 itself wasn't created until the 90s. Sure. So um, I don't, yeah, I don't recall if we've done anything else like that. No. Good for us for pushing boundaries, much like the filmmakers of Man Bites Dog <laughs> did. There we go. <laughs> so that is Man Bites Dog. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Uh, check us out on social media. Yeah, check us out. And thank you for all the responses and all the downloads, Josh. We just crossed a major milestone not too long ago, 20,000 downloads. So that's exciting. Oh, thank you, everybody. For us. Yeah. Um I'm uh I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy and all the on uh, all the socials. Uh, my website Go for Jason was murdered by Benoit a long time ago. However, my letterbox Go for Jason is still going strong. We're at Awesome Movie Year uh on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, awesomemovieyear.com if you like listening to things in RSS feeds. Yeah, or just on the website. So, um and yeah, thanks for the feedback. Uh, this is certainly a movie that I would think people have strong responses to. So please let us know what you think of this film of Man Bites Dog, if you've seen it, or if you haven't seen it and you see it because of us, please let us know if you now hate us. Or... Uh, and hopefully you've watched it before you listen to this episode, like when we first put it out, you know, because we literally gave away most. We of did give away all of it. But it, I feel like weirdly, this is a movie that can still be shocking, even if you know what's about to happen. I right. Think so. Um, I am at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook, at SignalBleed on Twitter, at JoshBellHatesEverything.com, where I may have written about this movie when I first saw it. I don't know. A little capsule might be there somewhere. I'll have to look. So that's fascinating stuff that you can find. Yeah, thanks, Josh. You're welcome. <laughs> and you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And Jason, what do we have in our next episode? 
Josh, it's my pick. It's 1992. I wonder how many people have seen it. I feel like it's kind of uh, uh, a lost gem, Josh. And it, it's an important movie. And I, obviously, I picked it. I like it. It's a, it's a movie directed by Kenneth Branagh called Peter's Friends. So tune in next time for Peter's Friends. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.